Thank you, Pastor Matt. Good morning, Trinity. It is an honor to be here with you again, preaching, teaching the Word of God, as Pastor Kirk and Shelby said during their, during their vacation, the governor uh, implemented these travel restrictions, effective August 1st, that uh, anybody from certain states had to come in and and either quarantine 14 days or have a negative test. And so instead of spending their last week trying to put together all the logistics in South Carolina of getting a test, uh, in a moment of vacation weakness, he agreed that I could preach again, and so I am here with you today. Um, (laughs) Thank you. It is, as he said, uh, with a heavy heart that I stand here um, with you today. Uh, We know that many of you are grieving, and we grieve with you. Um, But as Pastor Kirk said, Even more importantly, Jesus loves you, and he grieves as well. And I know of no better way of speaking into grief than preaching and teaching the gospel straight into it, and so that's what I'm going to do today. Last week, we studied through Acts chapter 17, and we focused on Paul's missionary work in Athens. Today, we're going to continue our series in the book of Acts And I'm going to summarize as best I can. We're going to sort of bunny hop over chapters 18, 19, and a little bit of 20. Um, But the back half of 20 is where we're going to camp out and spend most of our time today. Um, But before we do that, would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, you you know the lengths to which this material ground me spiritually this week. Father, I am not above this sermon. I am not above this text. I am not above your word. I am in it with this entire congregation in person and online. These truths spoke to me this week and they convicted me deeply. So Father, I need you to deliver this sermon and I am humbled that you would do it through me. But it has to be your spirit that carries these words into our hearts and minds. Father, as I prayed last week, give me the boldness to preach this the way it should be preached, but please wrap that in all humility and all compassion and all grace. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, in chapter 18 of the book of Acts, Luke records Paul traveling from Athens to nearby Corinth. Silas and Timothy, they finally show up in Corinth, conveniently missing the Athens journey altogether. And they stay there for about a year and a half, working and preaching. Then they sail back across the Aegean Sea to Ephesus. Paul preaches and teaches there, and then he sets sail all the way back to Caesarea, which is just north of Jerusalem. And there he finishes what we call his second missionary journey, finally arriving in Antioch, which if you remember was Paul and Silas's sending church. Now, I know I am skipping over several details. Paul begins his third missionary journey, then leaving Antioch and traveling west through Galatia and Phrygia. And he ends up back in Ephesus where he stays for three and a half years. Paul travels further west to Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea the same places he traveled in his second missionary journey, and then he doubles back again. In Troas, a town just north of Ephesus, Paul actually preaches so long 
that a poor guy falls asleep, falls out a window, and dies. And believe me, nothing will convict you of shortening the length of your sermon than reading about poor Eutychus. As Paul travels east, he decides to pass by Ephesus, and he lands in a town just south called Miletus, 30 miles south of Ephesus. Paul was desperately trying to get back to Jerusalem, and he wanted to for three reasons, all wrapped in a fourth. He wanted to spend Pentecost in Jerusalem. Luke tells us as much. He had taken up an offering in Macedonia for the brothers back in Jerusalem that he wanted to deliver and distribute. And he loved them. Paul was Jewish. He loved his ministry there. In fact, in his letter to the Christians in Rome, he writes, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself would be cut off and accursed for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Now, his kinsmen according to the Spirit were his brothers and sisters in Christ, but his kinsmen according to the flesh were his Jewish brothers. And even though they tried to kill him everywhere he went, he still loved them. But fourth, and perhaps most importantly, Paul knew that he was nearing the end. Paul sets foot in Miletus in 58 AD, and he would be beheaded for his faith in Rome in 64 AD. The greatest missionary the world has ever known is staring down the barrel of certain persecution and death. And while in Miletus, he calls for the elders from the church in Ephesus to come to him and delivers the only speech in the book of Acts to a Christian audience. So far, Luke has given us a picture of Paul trailblazing through the world, powered by the Holy Spirit, turning the world upside down, or depending on your perspective, right side up. But here in Miletus, everything slows down. And we get so much more than a picture of his ministry. We get a portrait of the man as he says goodbye. And this is where we're going to pick up scripture. Acts 20, verses 17 through 38. Now from Miletus he had sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time, from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public from house to house and from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and to the Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await. But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my course of the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Paul then admonishes the elders to protect the flock from wolves to come, in doctrine and in action. And when he finishes his speech, Luke says, 
And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and they kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Now, I was deeply moved this week by Paul's address to the Ephesian elders. In all honesty, this was one of the more difficult sermons I've ever had to write. And I struggled all week to articulate the ways in which this sermon stirred and convicted me. As a preacher, as a pastor, as a son, as a father, as a husband, as a leader, as a friend. And then in his divine providence, the Holy Spirit gave me a theme that diverged from almost every other time I heard this passage preached. A theme that touched every single area of my life, and I pray will touch yours as well. And we'll get to the theme in one second. But let me set the table with this. Bronnie Ware is an Australian nurse who spent the last 12 years of her life working and caring for patients in the last 12 weeks of their life. And as she began, as she did that, she began to keep a log of regrets that each one would tell her as they stared down the end of their life. And that log ended up becoming a book. But five regrets that came up over and over and over again in her time were the following. I wish I had had the courage to live true to myself. I wish I hadn't worked so hard. I wish I had the courage to express my feelings. I wish I had stayed in touch with my friends, and I wish I had let myself be more happy. Now, there's some solid advice in those five things, right? Don't live somebody else's life. Don't be a slave to your career. But I would contend that you could eliminate every single one of those regrets, and five more would take their place. Because not one of them is gospel-centered, and not one of them has eternal consequences. As Christians, we broker in the eternal. We deal in the divine. We have a stated purpose and a clear mission. So it would seem inconceivable that a Christian should come to the end of our lives and say, I wish I had insert regret here. And here at Trinity... In the past few months, we've seen the passing of stalwarts of the faith as they have passed into glory. Etta and Hekier, but two that come to mind. They led gospel-centered lives, lives with zero regrets, lives with eternal consequences. And in the address that Paul gives to the Ephesian elders, I think he gives us a biblical recipe for living that gospel-centered life. And so what I want to do today is I want to go back through Paul's address and I want to pull out three attributes of a gospel-centered life. Paul says in verse 18 and 19, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials. And that brings us to attribute number one. A gospel-centered life is a life lived in service to the Lord. Now, Paul no doubt begins with this exhortation because it is absolutely the most important. If you want to lead a gospel-centered life, a life with no regrets, serve the Lord. This is so important that I believe if we get this wrong, 
It doesn't matter what else we get right. And let me explain why. What does it mean to serve the Lord? Well, you know I can't go very far without getting into the Greek. So here we go. Serve. Doulos in the Greek means slave. Bondservant. Now I know that slavery and even the term slave just conjured up some really horrific thoughts in your mind. But let me assure you, this is not what the Bible is talking about. So let me give it a better definition. Unyielding obedience. Now I want to invite every single one of us to reflect on what this means biblically. And let me be clear, I am not asking you what you think this means to you. And likewise, do not care what I think this means to me. What we need to be laser focused on is what does this mean to Jesus? And in Luke chapter 14, he tells us. Listen to what Jesus says to those who were accompanying him. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. I did a word study on the word cannot. It means cannot. So what is Jesus saying here? No, he is not saying that we should hate our family and hate our own life. He is using hyperbole to say that in comparison to how much we love him, it should look like we detest everyone else. But then Jesus raises the bar even higher. Whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. To carry a cross was a death march. Christ is calling us to die to ourselves and to live for him. This is what it means to Christ. Now, what did it mean for Paul and what does it mean for us to serve the Lord? It means that your life and my life is no longer your life and no longer my life. It is Jesus'. He is the master. He calls the shots. Remember last week when we read from Paul's letter to the Philippians, he wrote to them and he said, I count everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Yeah, Paul, but what about your status as a Pharisee? Loss. What about your wealth? Loss. Your popularity, loss. Your career, loss. Your convenience, loss. Why? Because Jesus is better than all that stuff. The surpassing worth of being in relationship with him is better than all that stuff. Is King Jesus such in your life and such in my life that you or I would be ready to walk away from status, control, Fame, popularity, notoriety, convenience, comfort, money. Like Paul, would you or I suffer for the cause of Christ? As you sit here today, are you willing to put your life on the line for Jesus Christ? It is so easy for us, for me, to fall prey to believing in Abercrombie Jesus with the perfect hair and the lamb around his neck, who seems to just be happy that we're on his team. And so often I have to be reminded of King Jesus, 
with the thorns on his head, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. These are the terms that Jesus puts forth to every single one of his disciples. And they're not up for debate, and they're not up for discussion, and they're not up for negotiation. The words that I read to you from Luke, Jesus said those words to those who were accompanying him, which means he will not settle for being the tour guide of your life or mine. He demands unyielding obedience. We must give all that we are to all that he is. And I know that sounds stiff, and I know that sounds harsh. So let me layer onto it the grace and mercy that it deserves. Who would you rather turn your world over to than the one who created the universe? Who would you rather give your life to than the one who gave his life for you? He shed his blood for you. He was clothed in your sin so that you might be adorned in his righteousness. The son was called sinner so that a sinner like me could be called son. Why wouldn't we turn our life over in absolute allegiance, in absolute obedience, in absolute loyalty? This is what it means to serve the Lord. And this is the first and most important step to living a gospel-centered life. As you sit here today, is Jesus not just Savior, but is he Lord over your life. Attribute number two of a gospel-centered life, verse 18, 20, 21, and 27, a life spent among others preaching and teaching and declaring the full gospel. You know how I lived among you the whole time. I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, Paul says, teaching you in public and from house to house. And again, he says, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Let me summarize what Paul is saying here. Discipleship. We first give our lives to Christ, and then we give our lives to raising up others in Christ. And was not this the way of Paul? Pouring into Silas, pouring into Timothy, pouring into the Ephesians for three and a half years. And wasn't this the way of our master Jesus? Pouring into the twelve, more specifically the three, Peter, James, and John, declaring the truth to them, teaching them about the kingdom, breaking bread with them, spending time with them, calling them on their sin, encouraging them in purity, raising them up in their faith, in compassion, in grace, in mercy. If it's true that giving our lives to Jesus is the first thing that Satan attacks, is it not true that the second thing he attacks is us carrying out the Great Commission? Like, hey, fine, you want to be a Christian and believe? Go for it. But I'm going to make you the most ineffective Christian there is. You're not going to change the world. You're not going to change your home. You're not going to change your office. You're going to count it a win just to get to church on time. Praise getting to church on time. You don't really have time for that Bible study. Don't you know you've got nine hours of Netflix to binge? Life-on-life relationship? Come on. Who has time for that? C.S. Lewis, the famed atheist convert to Christianity, wrote a book called The Screwtape Letters. The book chronicles the guidance of a senior devil 
to his nephew, rookie devil, Wormwood. Wormwood has been assigned to a person, the patient, and his goal is to get him to turn away from Jesus. Screwtape advises Wormwood on how to do this. And in one of his letters to Wormwood, after the patient has been going to church a few times, Screwtape says this, a moderated religion is as good for us as no religion at all, and even more amusing. A moderated religion, checking the box, going through the motions. You're not pouring into anybody, and no one is pouring into you. And I think in the West, the enemy uses two strategies, if you will, to slide us out of a dynamic relationship with Christ, the type of relationship we were meant to have, and into a moderated religion. And the first one is complacency. Discipleship is hard. Amen? It takes time. It takes intentionality. It takes vulnerability. It takes commitment. It is hard, but it is worth it. Why? Because at the core of discipleship is Jesus, and at the core of Jesus is love. And in John chapter 14, Jesus says this to his disciples as he marches to the cross. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus inextricably links discipleship in love. And the reason that this commandment is new, kainos, new in kind, nothing like it before, is that Jesus benchmarks love to himself. Love one another as I have loved you. Where are you going with this? Let me reverse it. Would you like Jesus right now, or at any time, let's say in the past three months, to love you the way that you have loved others? I don't know, David, loving you is kind of tough. It takes time. It takes a whole lot of patience. It takes intentionality. It takes commitment. Would I want Jesus to love me complacently? Did Paul love the Ephesian church complacently? No. Discipleship matters because it is the highest form of love we can give because it is first a giving of ourselves to Jesus and second a giving of ourselves to one another. And life is lived at the fullest when love is found at its highest. No room for complacency here. There's way too much at stake in our lives and in the lives of others. Reason number two, it is easy to slide from a dynamic relationship with Christ to a moderated religion, and this is going to feel like blunt force trauma. We don't trust that Jesus knew what he was doing when he saved us, and so we don't believe that God really wants to use us. We don't trust that Jesus knew what he was doing when he saved us, and so therefore we don't trust and believe that God really wants to use us. Now tell me, if you were standing at Stephen's execution at the end of Acts chapter 8, with Paul standing there authorizing it, would you have walked up to Paul after the execution and said, 
you know, Paul, I really see something in you. You are going to change the world for Jesus. Nope. But here's the deal. Jesus didn't save me because of me. And he didn't save you because of you. And God doesn't call the equipped. He equips the called. If you've been saved, you've been called. And if you've been called, you've been equipped. There is way too much on the line in our lives and in the lives of others. We must be disciples who make disciples. And at Trinity, we have now and we have more coming, so many ways to get connected and get involved in the lives of your brothers and sisters. Bible studies, small groups, women's ministries, men's ministries, ways to serve. These are not things that we have. These are extensions of who we are and who we are called to be as we live out our faith in Christ and with one another. And if you're not connected, I'll just remind you, take the next step and I'll see you at 6.30 tonight at the white tent. A gospel-centered life is one lived in service to the Lord and in being a disciple that makes disciples. Attribute number three and the last one. A gospel-centered life is a life led by the Spirit. Paul says to the Ephesians, I loved you. I lived with you. I taught you. I preached to you. I served you. And And then in verse 22, he says, Behold, I am going to Jerusalem bound by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city, that imprisonment and affliction awaits. When Paul leaves Ephesus and finally gets back to Caesarea, just north of Jerusalem, the brothers there beg him not to go to Jerusalem because a prophet named Agabus prophesied that the Romans there would take him into custody and it would mean the end of his ministry and the end of his life. And Paul's response is this, what are you doing? Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I wrote this section of the sermon on Thursday in tears. Paul knows that serving the Lord, discipling, evangelizing, is going to cost him his very life. And the reason I was moved to tears then and am evidently now is because it's clear to me that so often I, we, look for modes and methods of evangelism and discipleship that cost us nothing, that demand nothing. And this type of gospel would be unrecognizable to Paul and should be unacceptable to us. I wonder how many times you and I have said to ourselves, if I only had six months to live, I would go here, I would go there, I would talk to this person, I would finally sit down with this family member, and I would preach, and I would proclaim. But why is it that we need a death sentence to proclaim the words of life? If we have died together with Christ and been raised to life with him, what are we afraid of? A year and a half ago, I was generously invited by a gospel group to speak at an event in Beirut, Lebanon. But for Christ, I can tell you I had no business even being invited. That I can promise you. The real hook for me, however, was that the day after the dinner, we would be bussed up into the mountains to the border of Syria and Lebanon to preach the gospel to Syrian refugees. Three weeks before the trip, the U.S. government issued the highest threat level for travel to the region. One week before the trip, walking to my desk, 
I ruptured the lining of a disc in my back and I could barely walk. It was clear to me that the enemy did not want us to go on this trip and it would soon be revealed to me why. The dinner event was massive and way too swanky. I was seated at this table of honor with dignitaries from all over the world. Again, if not for Christ, I didn't belong anywhere near this event. The next day, we boarded the buses and drove for hours into the mountains. And there we met with Syrian refugees who fled the dire persecution that continues to this day. The first place we arrived at was a bombed-out compound. We walked into a room where 14 refugees were sitting around a small coal fire. It was clear from the people running the camp that we were on borrowed time. Around the table was a family and a father, and he shared with us their 30-mile journey through the mountains to escape their home. As he tells us this, his 14-year-old son is sitting by his side. When they had left their home in Syria, his son could walk. During their escape, he was hit by a mortar that didn't explode, although I bet he wish it did, because it completely paralyzed him. And his father had to carry him through the mountains to safety. The government had failed them. Their leaders had failed them. Their religion had failed them. They did not want to hear some gospel of convenience or some consumeristic gospel. They needed the words of eternal hope. We preached to them through multiple translators. We preached to them repentant faith in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, and it was an honor to pray with each one of them as all 14 gave their lives to Christ. It was then made very clear to me that we needed to leave, and on the bus ride to another camp, I said to one of our guides, who was a local pastor in Beirut, I said, listen, I don't want to forget what's going on here, right? You get on that ministry high, and then you come home, and everything's the same. I said, I don't want that. I said, I want to remember the sense of urgency and the need. What can we send you in support when we get home? And in my Western mind, I was sure the answer was going to be money or resources. And what followed shredded me. He said, send people who care. What are we waiting for to heed the call given to us by the Spirit? Whatever it may be wherever we might go, and whatever might happen? Are we willing to do whatever it takes to say what needs to be said, to do what needs to be done, to make the name of Jesus known in our homes, known in our neighborhood, known in our nation, and known across the globe? At the end of his life, writing to Timothy, Paul, from house arrest in Rome, Paul says what it sounds like to live a life of no regrets, a life centered on the gospel. Notice what he does not say. He does not say, I wish I hadn't worked so hard. He does not say, I wish I was more happy. He does not say, I wish I kept up with my buddies. Here's what it sounds like to exit a life, lived for Christ with no regrets and enter into glory. As for you, Timothy, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing." 
As I said before, Paul was then beheaded in Rome for being a Christian. But the focus of our time together today was not on his death. And in light of all that's happened this week, I feel compelled to end with this. It is not our death that defines us, no matter how glorious or how tragic. It is the death of Jesus Christ that defines us. Jesus, this Jesus, who perfectly served the will of the Father, who poured out who poured into all until he was ultimately poured out for all. And although God led his son into the tomb for his glory and our salvation, it was the Holy Spirit that led him out. One day, every one of us will wake up and it will be our last. One day, God calls all of his children home. Until that day, in all humility, and with tears and in trials, may we serve the Lord. May we be disciples that make disciples. And may we live led by the Holy Spirit, wherever that takes us and whatever that means. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, that praise and applause is for you and for your word. You are mighty to save. And you don't just save us from something, you save us for something. Father, we are called to serve you. There is no higher calling. We are called to be disciples that make disciples. Father, I pray that is said for each one of us, that we realize life, life to the fullest, not in the things and stuff of this world, but in you. Father, I pray that every one of us and us collectively at Trinity, your church, that you lead us by your Holy Spirit and you give us the strength and the boldness and the courage to follow wherever that leads. I pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.